0: chapter 9 the holy spirit a third person or god in action i begin with a quotation the conventional conception of the holy spirit as a separate and distinct divine person is a growth it was not a belief of early christianity that's a quotation from basil wilberforce according to orthodox trinitarianism the holy spirit is a third member of the eternal Godhead, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and Son. This so-called person, or distinction in the Godhead, however, has no personal name. The question raised by non-Trinitarians is does the Bible really support belief in a third quote, subsistence, to use the language of Trinitarians, who is as distinct from the Father as the Son obviously is. It's hard for us to believe that Scripture, read without the benefit of later creeds, clearly presents the Holy Spirit as a, quote, person, whatever that means. And I note that Trinitarians seem unable to define the word with any confidence. Is this really a person distinct from the Father and Son? The customary but arbitrary use of the pronoun he, or the Spirit, has conditioned us to think of a third person. A very different impression is created if we render Spirit as, quote, it. As, for example, in the King James Version, in Romans 8, verse 16, where we read that the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But the King James Version elsewhere makes the Spirit a person, as He. Our difficulty in accepting the Spirit as a third person of the Triune God is reflected in an amazing admission of the prominent Orthodox Greek church father and church leader, Gregory of Nazianzen, who in 381 AD stated, I quote, of the wise among us, some hold the Holy Spirit to be a power, energia, others a creature, others for God, and still others are unwilling to decide, out of reverence, as they say for the Scriptures, which do not speak plainly on the matter. That's a quotation from Gregory of Nazianzus, as cited in in the article Macedonius from the New schaff Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, written in 1963. Where then had the Trinity been for the 300 years, separating this Greek tradition from the death of the Apostles? Our theologian seems to have been remarkably slow to catch on to what is supposed always to have been apostolic orthodoxy. Does a cover-to-cover reading of the Bible yield a Trinitarian view of the Spirit? If one combs through standard Bible dictionaries, it is obvious that 98% of the biblical data is satisfied if we define the Spirit as God or Jesus in effective action. God in communication or Jesus in communication their power and their personality extending their influence to touch the creation in a variety of ways. The remaining evidence might be pushed in the direction of later Trinitarianism, but is this justified? Is the Spirit really anything other than God's energy inspiring human beings to perform extraordinary feats of valor, endowing them, special artistic skill or miraculous powers, and especially communicating divine truth. Granted, the new thing that has occurred since Pentecost, the focusing of the Spirit in the risen Christ, there's no need to alter the original revealed meaning of Spirit as God's vitalizing, inspiring energy and his holy intelligence revealed and transmitted through Christ heart to heart to those who seek him and his truth. The word Spirit in the Bible has several different meanings, all related, however, to the basic idea of invisible power and mind. In both Testaments, Holy Spirit describes the energy of God directed to creation and inspiration. It is God in action and an extension of His personality. Wherever the Spirit is at work, we recognize the operational presence of God. I quote, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's a quotation from Psalm 51, verse 10 and 11. A few verses earlier David desires to have quote truth in his innermost being and the capacity to know wisdom at Psalm 51 verse 6 compare with that the spirit in the inner man Ephesians 3 verse 16 showing the close connection between truth and spirit as also in John 6:63 6, The working of God's Spirit in David would produce this desirable effect. In other passages, Spirit and the presence of God are equated. I quote, Where can I go from your Spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139, verse 7. There's a close connection in Psalm 33, verse 6, between God's Spirit. And his creative activity. I quote By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath, the Hebrew word there, Ruach, as Septuagint Greek is pnevma, by his breath, the breath of his mouth. The fact that spirit and breath are translations of the same Hebrew and Greek words points to the root meaning. Of spirit as God's creative power, the energy behind his utterance. The Spirit of God is certainly not just an abstract power. Since it is God in action, it is most personal. It is God's outreach. God's Spirit is his personality extended to his creation. It can be resisted by sinful human beings. Thus, Israel's rebellion was a grieving of God's Spirit, Isaiah 63, verse 10. In the same context, we learn that the angel of his presence was actively engaged in the salvation of God's people, Isaiah 63, verse 9. There is evidence here that angels are involved in the mediation of God's spiritual activity, in human affairs. Luke observed that, quote, an angel spoke to Philip, Acts 8, verse 26. Three verses later, he says that the Spirit spoke to Philip, verse 29. An angel of the Spirit is found in Jewish literature outside the Bible and might explain Luke's indirect reference to a divine messenger mediating the Spirit of God. For example, in the Ascension of Isaiah, a Jewish book, chapter 4 verse 21, chapter 7 verse 23, chapter 9 verse 36 and 39, chapter 10 verse 4, and chapter 11 verse 35, the angel is perhaps identified with Gabriel. Look at Ascension chapter 3 verse 16, and chapter 11 verse 4 compare also the fact that we have an association of gabriel with the activity of the spirit in luke 1 verses 26 and 35 it is going beyond the evidence of scripture to equate the spirit of god with a person distinct from the one god in the same sense As the Son is distinct from the Father. There are clear differences between what the Bible says about the Father and the Son and what it says about the Spirit. God and Christ are obviously separate individuals worthy of receiving worship, the Father in his capacity as Creator, the Son Jesus as instrument and agent in the salvation of mankind. Yet the Holy Spirit has no personal name. Why is it that in no text of Scripture is the Holy Spirit worshipped or prayed to? Not once does the Holy Spirit send greetings to the churches. When the apostles write to their churches, greetings are always sent from two persons, the Father and the Son. It's quite extraordinary that Paul would constantly omit mention of the third person of the Trinity, if he believed him to exist. When he charges Timothy to keep the faith, he speaks in the invisible presence of, quote, God and of Christ and his chosen angels. First Timothy 5, verse 21. A leading biblical theologian of this century and a prominent member of the Church of England appears to reject the idea That the Bible presents the spirit as a third person. I quote, to ask whether in the New Testament the spirit is a person in the modern sense of the word would be like asking whether the spirit of Elijah is a person. The Spirit of God is of course personal. It is God's dynamis, his power in action. But the Holy Spirit is not a person existing independently of God. It's a way of speaking about God's personally acting in history or of the risen Christ's personally acting in the life and witness of the church. The New Testament, and indeed patristic thought generally, nowhere represents the Spirit any more than the wisdom of God as having independent personality. That's a quotation from Alan Richardson in his Introduction to the Theology of the New Testament, written in 1958. Luke's careful choice of words in three important passages shows how spirit and power are interchangeable terms. John the Baptist will go as a forerunner before the Messiah, quote, "...in the spirit and power of Elijah." Luke 1 verse 17. At the conception of the Son of God, Mary is told that, and I quote, Holy Spirit, there's no article in the Greek, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Luke 1 verse 35. When Jesus announces the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he states his intention to quote, Send forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 24, verse 49. The term, quote, Spirit of God, in one passage, is replaced by the finger of God in the parallel text, comparing Matthew 12, verse 28, and Luke 11, verse 20. The finger of God hardly describes a person. The Spirit which operated in the early church was recognized as the Spirit of Jesus. His very personality extended to empower and inspire the believers. Luke writes, quote, And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. There's apparently no essential difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus. I quote, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Romans 8, verse 9. In the same passage, Paul speaks of the Spirit interceding for the saints. Since he does not elsewhere recognize the Spirit as a third person, it's reasonable to think that he sees no difference between the intercession of the Spirit and the intercession of Christ, mentioned in the same context. Romans 8, verses 27 and 34. While Christ himself is with the Father, his spirit is active in the hearts of believers. Some have argued that there must be a third person associated with God and Christ, since intelligence and goodness are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. For example, Nehemiah writes of God giving his, quote, good spirit to instruct them. Nehemiah 9, verse 20. It is obvious, however, that the Spirit of God possesses all the qualities of God. But there's no need to think of the Spirit as a distinct third person. A simpler explanation is given by Paul, when he compares the Spirit of God with the Spirit of man. He begins by speaking of God's Spirit. I quote, The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. He then compares the activity of this Spirit with the inner self-consciousness of man. I quote, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. The Spirit of a man is to his own thoughts as the Spirit of God is to his own thoughts. Holy Spirit is therefore holy intelligence, a revelation of the very mind of God. Spirit and heart are often closely connected, even interchanged, in the Hebrew Bible. What could be more reassuring than that God opens up his innermost plans and purposes to us, speaking heart to heart with man, his creature, and effecting this liaison by means of his own creative intelligence and spirit. Prominent Trinitarian writers seem to have gone far beyond the evidence of Scripture when they assert that the third person of the Trinity was involved in a conversation when God said, Let us make man in our own image. Genesis 1.26 Torrey wrote, I quote, There are many who say that the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Old Testament, that while it is in the New Testament, it is not in the Old Testament. But the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Old Testament. In the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis one twenty six, we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's from R.A. Torrey's book on the Holy Spirit, written in 1977. It seems imaginative to say that God here spoke, to the Holy Spirit. God does not speak to his own spirit. He would be talking to himself. Unless by spirit an angel messenger of God is meant, is there anywhere in Scripture a hint of God speaking to his Holy Spirit? Such an idea is as foreign to the Bible as the notion that the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped or thanked, as Torrey recommends. The hymn which encourages us to, quote, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost originates in a milieu which has lost track of the biblical doctrine of the Spirit. Torrey even tells us that the Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, is really a Trinitarian creed. The plural form of Elohim is the basis of his argument which has been rejected by a mass of Trinitarian scholars. Why is it that popular literature makes such an appeal, while the much more thorough investigations of recognized authorities on the Hebrew language go unnoticed? In Jesus' last discourses to his disciples, he speaks of the, quote, comforter who will come to encourage the faithful after Jesus has been taken to the Father. Since comforter, the Greek word is paraklitos, is a masculine word in Greek, translators who believed in the third person of the Trinity rendered the following pronouns as he and him. The same comforter is, however, also the Spirit of the Truth. This title hardly suggests a person, If we do not assume the Holy Spirit to be a person distinct from the Father and Son, the text will be rendered as follows. I quote, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to remain with you until the coming age. The Spirit of the Truth, which the world cannot receive, because it does not see it, or know it, avto neuter, agreeing with the Spirit. But you know it, after, agreeing with the Spirit, because it remains with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in my name, it, Ekinos now, masculine in the Greek, to agree with Paraklitos, but translated as he, only if it's assumed, a person and a third person is meant. The Paraklitos will teach you all things and remind you of all the things I spoke to you. John 14, verses 15 to 18. And verse 26. The comments of the Trinitarian James Denny are instructive. What strikes us here is the new name given to the Spirit, another Comforter. It is indeed only the name which is new. In idea, it answers closely to the only promise of the Spirit which we find in the Synoptic Gospels. The expression, another Comforter, implies that the disciples have already had experience of one, namely Jesus himself. As long as he was with them, their strength was reinforced from him, and when he goes, his place is taken by the Spirit. There's another power with them now, which does for them what Jesus did before. Yet is it really another? In 1 John 2, verse 1, it is Jesus who is called the paraclete or comforter, even after Pentecost, and even here, in John 14, 18, he says, I come to you. The presence of the Spirit is Jesus' own presence in Spirit. The equation of God's, or Jesus' Spirit, with their vitalizing power and personality is most obvious in the rest of Scripture. Jesus says to the disciples, I quote, When they deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you will say. Whatever will be given you at that time, speak, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Mark 13 verse 11. Luke's version makes it clear that the Spirit speaking in the disciples is Christ himself. I quote, settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you speech and wisdom which your adversaries shall not be able to resist or refute. Luke 21 verses 14 and 15. A fulfillment of this promise occurred when the enemies of Stephen were not able, quote, to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke, Acts 6, verse 10. It's illuminating to find that the Holy Spirit of Mark thirteen eleven is simply, in the parallel passage in Matthew 10, verse 20, the spirit of your Father, Both passages are further clarified by Luke, who sees the Spirit of God as God acting to communicate his utterance and wisdom to the beleaguered disciple. Luke 21, verse 15. This view of the Spirit is entirely in line with the Hebrew Bible, but it would be impossible to insert a definition of the Spirit as a person distinct from the Father and Son in these passages. Should the plain evidence of almost every part of Scripture be disturbed by a handful of verses in John's Gospel? Alan Richardson concludes that for John, I quote, Christ himself comes in the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit who interprets the Scriptures is none other than than the Lord himself. That's from Alan Richardson's book, Introduction to the Theology of the New Testament. John actually calls Christ the Comforter in his first epistle, 1 John 2 verse 1. This is the only other occurrence of Paraklitos, Comforter. Paul's view is exactly the same. He says, the Lord is the Spirit And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. A Trinitarian scholar and commentator on the Gospel of John summed up his findings. I quote We are not to infer that John regarded the Spirit as a personality in the sense of the later church doctrine. The discourses of John dwell on the relation. Of the Father to the Son without any thought of a third person coordinated with them in one Godhead. So said Professor E. F. Scott in his book The Fourth Gospel written in 1926. Another biblical scholar of the last century defined the comforter. I quote, the divine power personified As an assistant is compared here, as in John 15 verse 26, to the ambassador of a prince, who speaks only in accordance with the charge entrusted to him by the sender, and agreeably to his will and pleasure. So said C.T. Quinawell, cited by Wilson in his book Concessions of Trinitarians. There is insufficient evidence to show that Paul believed in three persons in one God. We've seen that Paul understood the Spirit as the self-awareness and mind of God. When he speaks of the Spirit as a heavenly power distinct from the Father and helping Christians with prayer, he refers in the same passage to Christ himself, quote, pleading for us. Romans 8, verses 26 and 34. The Spirit is Christ himself extending his influence to the believers. In summary, we may say that the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was never thought of as a person distinct from the Father. The following statement was made by an eminent professor of biblical languages. I quote, it cannot be proved out of the whole number of passages in the Old Testament in which the Holy Spirit is mentioned that this is a person in the Godhead. And it is now, around 1775, the almost universally received opinion of learned commentators that, in the language of the Jews, the Holy Spirit means nothing more than divine, Inspiration without any reference to a person. So said J.D. Michaelis in his remarks on John 16, 13 to 15, cited by Wilson in his book Unitarian Principles Confirmed by Trinitarian Testament. What of the New Testament? In our own time, Karl Rahner says plainly Ortheos, meaning God, is never used in the New Testament to speak of the Penevma Aion or Holy Spirit, as from Rana's Theological Investigations, written in 1963. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, is no exception. Some Trinitarians offer these verses as proof of a third person in the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. The texts equate lying to the Holy Spirit with lying to God. The Holy Spirit here means the power and authority invested by God in Peter. Those who lie to apostles speaking in the name of God and by his Spirit are rightly said to lie to the Spirit and to God. The point is confirmed by a comment from Paul. I quote, He who despises us despises not men, but God, who has given us his spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 8 There's a striking parallel in the Old Testament when the Israelites rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Moses told them that their rebellion was, quote, not against us, but against God, whose messengers we are. The equation of Moses and Aaron with God does not, of course, make the former part of the Godhead. Exodus 16, verses 2 and 8. The Spirit of God did, however, reside in Moses, and it may be that the Israelite rebellion mentioned in the Psalms was directed against Moses and Moses' spirit. Psalm 106, verse 33, in the Authorized Version, Revised Version, and Revised Standard Version, or possibly against the angel of God's presence who was invested with the authority and power of Yahweh, according to Isaiah 63, verses 9 to 11. Compare with that Exodus 23, 21, where the angel bears God's name. Our impression is that distinguished Trinitarians are sometimes tied to the official creed, despite their own reservations about the way in which it is expressed. Luther disliked the term Trinity. I quote, The word Trinity is never found in the divine records, but is only a human invention, and therefore sounds altogether cold. Calvin sensed that prayer to a triune God is unscriptural. I dislike this vulgar prayer, Holy Trinity, One God, have mercy on us, as altogether savoring of barbarism. We repudiate such expressions as being not only insipid, But profane. But why, if God really is a Trinity, should one object? What indeed is wrong with the expression Mother of God, which Protestants reject? If indeed Jesus was God and Mary was his mother, and if the Holy Spirit is really a distinct personality, why was he the Father of Jesus rather than God the Father? It was the Spirit which caused Mary's conception, according to Luke 1, verse 35. When the mature John the Apostle wrote his first epistle, he confined his use of Spirit to an activity of God and an endowment given to Christians. I quote, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us, a portion of his spirit, ek tu pnevmatos aftu. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. God does not give a portion of a person, but a measure of his mind and power. John is thinking of something which can be quantified, as does Peter, when quoting a passage referring to a pouring out from my spirit acts 2 verse 17 persons surely are not poured out but god can grant the provision of his limitless energy the language is quite inappropriate for the spirit as a third person in another passage john speaks of the spirit as that which witnesses because it is itself the truth In our minds. As is well known, a famous spurious verse follows this text. It speaks of the three witnesses, quote, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. These words have no right to stand in the New Testament, so says B.M. Metzger in his textual commentary on the Greek New Testament written in 1971. These words are omitted from modern translations of the Bible. Their first appearance in Greek is in 1215, and only as a translation of the Latin Acts of the Lateran Council. Not until the 16th century are the words found in any Greek manuscript, and then only as a translation of of a Latin version of the Bible. Jesus' command to baptize into the name of the Father the Son and Holy Spirit in Matthew 28 verse 19 is of no weight in proving that Jesus believed in a trinity of three co-equal persons since he recognized the Father as quote the only true God John 17 3 and subscribed to the non-Trinitarian creed of Israel. Mark 12, verse 29. As the Trinitarian Michaelis said, quote, It is impossible to understand from this passage whether the Holy Spirit is a person. The meaning of Jesus may have been this. Those who were baptized should, upon their baptism, confess that they believed in the Father and the Son and in all the doctrines inculcated by the Holy Spirit. That's from a book called The Burial and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's benediction, which spoke of, quote, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, is also not, a Trinitarian formula, though it will sound Trinitarian if one approaches the text with the preconception that Paul believed in three eternal persons. Paul elsewhere spoke of, quote, the fellowship of the Spirit and the, quote, comfort in Christ. Philippians 2, verse 1. These passages can be explained as the influence of Jesus, through his spirit, working in the believers. It is unnecessary to postulate the existence of the third member of a trinity. An unusual use of Pnevma-ayun, or Holy Spirit, by Paul's companion, Luke, strongly suggests that for him, the spirit was always the divine influence, not a third person. He speaks of, quote, Holy Spirit of the mouth of David, in Acts 4, verse 25. The expression recalls David's own consciousness that, quote, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was in my mouth. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. In Jewish literature of the New Testament period, we find the same picture of inspiration. I quote, the spirit of righteousness descended into Jacob's mouth. That's a quotation from the book of Jubilees, chapter 25, verse 14. All such language does not fit the idea of a distinct person. The same difficulty faces Trinitarianism when the spirit is quantified, as when Malachi speaks of God having, quote, the residue of the Spirit, Malachi 2, verse 15. John also thinks of the Spirit as given in different quantities. Jesus received it in full, quote, measure, John 3, verse 34. Paul likewise speaks of, quote, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, verse 19. The language suggests a reservoir of power rather than a person. It is significant that Paul depends on the prayers of the church for continuous help from the Holy Spirit. A serious difficulty for Trinitarianism is the fact that nothing is said in the earliest post-biblical times of the Spirit as the third person in the Godhead. No formal Trinitarian definition of the Holy Spirit appears until 381 A.D. at the Council of Constantinople. Only then was it declared that there are, quote, three persons in one God. More than 300 years after the ministry of Jesus, the leaders of the Church were uncertain about the nature of the Holy Spirit. Even then, many of them did not think of the Holy Spirit as a person, so said Philip Schaff in his History of the Christian Church. There is, therefore, no unbroken Trinitarian tradition linking us with the writings of the Apostles. The biblical data is adequately explained by thinking of the Spirit as the mind, heart, And personality of God and Christ extended to the creation. The Spirit has personality because it reflects the persons of the Father and the Son. Holy Spirit is another way of speaking of the Father and Son in action, teaching, guiding, and inspiring the church. We see no need to posit the existence of a third person, separate and distinct from God and His Son. There is, in fact, biblical support for a so-called Trinity of Father, Son, and believers who are united and bonded by the same Holy Spirit. Thus, John reports Jesus as praying, quote, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. Those are Jesus' words in John 17, verses 21 and 23. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the truth, is the mind of the Creator graciously made available to suffering humanity. Access to the Holy Spirit is found in the words of Jesus, which are spirit and are life. John 6, verse 63. Christians possess the anointing, which teaches them true doctrine, guards them against the destructive lies of the devil, and enables them to remain In union with Christ. 1 John 2 verse 27. We cannot help thinking that the real function of Holy Spirit is obscured when attention is diverted to the question about the Spirit as a third member of a Godhead. The enormous significance of the Spirit lies in its being God Himself in his creative and communicating function opening his very heart to his creatures the phrase the spirit speaks is not different from god word wisdom and spirit are closely connected these are divine attributes of the one god not persons distinct from him defining the spirit as a third person is unnecessary it raises a speculative problem with catastrophic results. The problem arose when a divine attribute, which may sometimes in the Bible be personified, was turned into a person. There's no good reason for abandoning the obvious analogy between the expression Spirit of Elijah, Luke one seventeen, and Spirit of God. The Spirit of Elijah is not a different person from Elijah, nor is God's Spirit a different person from God. The Spirit of God provides us with insight into the innermost being of the deity. We encounter God as he extends himself through his Spirit, predominantly in the words of Scripture, which are, so to speak, inspirited, 2 Timothy 3.16. When we read that, quote, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart, Genesis 6 verse 6, it was the Spirit of God which was grieved. Compare with that Ephesians 4 verse 30. When God's eyes and heart resided in the temple, 1 Kings 9 verse 3, one could equally well say that his Spirit was was present there. The close association of spirit, mind, heart, and word, or words, appears in the revealing words of Proverbs 1, verse 23. Turn at my reproof. I will bubble forth my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Moffat catches another facet of meaning with, quote, I will make my mind known to you. The Revised Standard Version exposes the intellectual aspect of the Spirit. Quote, I will pour out my thoughts on you, while the Jerusalem Bible allows us to see yet another layer of meaning, I will open my heart to you. God's Spirit is His holy intelligence, character, and disposition, the index of the plans and purposes of His heart. Through the Spirit, we are invited to participate in that range of divine activity, becoming, quote, holy as God is holy and being privy to the secret counsel which he longs to share with us. The intimacy of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Psalm 25, verse 14. Knowing nothing of later dogma, Paul freely interchanges spirit and mind, thus giving us an apostolic definition of the Holy Spirit. I quote, Who has known the mind, the Greek word is nous, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Romans 11, verse 34. The Hebrew text Paul is quoting reads, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? By receiving the Spirit, which is equivalent to receiving the knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 10 verse 26, we gain access to the divine personality extended to us in the Spirit.